Welcome to Seafoodie, a podcast series that seeks out meaningful conversations about the issues surrounding seafood and the complex system that gets it to your mouth. I'm your host, Chef Robert Jones, and I interview guests from all over the world who make up the fabric of our seafood supply chain. For today's episode, I want you to close your eyes for a minute and imagine a trip to the seafood counter of your favorite grocery store. Now, as you stand there looking at the beautiful glistening fish and shrimp and crabs and scallops on piles of ice, you also see a lot of little placards with words like non-GMO, organic, sustainably caught, farm fresh, slavery free, it can be a little bit confusing for even the most well-intentioned shopper uh, because it can also be unclear about how it was decided that those seafoods meet those standards. The truth is, like most things, it can be complex and it can change over time as local ecosystems change. Okay, you can open your eyes. On today's show, we're going to dive into a case study that is hot off the presses for how one grocery store tackled a very tricky local seafood issue that gets to the heart of how decisions are made about buying and labeling seafood for consumers in an environment with underlying causes like climate change, pollution, and habitat loss that are impacting the entire food web that creates the sea critters that we all love to eat. From Seattle, Washington, we're joined by Amy Simpson. Uh, Amy is the Director of Product Sustainability for PCC Community Markets, a beloved grocery store chain in the Pacific Northwest. She's an attorney by trade and an environmentalist at heart with over a decade of legal and policy expertise in a wide range of food, environmental health, and consumer protection issues, including tenures at Consumer Reports, the Center for Food Safety, Beyond Pesticides, and the Center for Progressive Reform. Also from Seattle, we're joined by Brad Warren. Brad is the executive director of the National Fisheries Conservation Center. He came to NFCC after more than 25 years as a fisheries journalist and a consultant for NOAA, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, and for industry, tribal, and conservation groups. He's a nationally recognized expert on fisheries management, including having testified in front of Congress on climate change and ocean acidification. Perhaps just as important, though, Brad is a fellow show host here at the American Shoreline Podcast Network, and you definitely need to check out his show called Changing Waters. Brad and Amy, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Let's start out with a little scene setting. Um, Amy, my audience is from all over the country and a mix of culinarians, seafood lovers, and folks who make their living in economies around coastal communities. Many of them will not be familiar with PCC. Um, So can you give us a primer on the company and why it's unique? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, PCC Community Markets was started in 1953 as a food buying cooperative and now has grown into the largest community-owned food market in the country. Um, We have 15 different stores and we focus on organic and sustainable food systems and making sure that we're kind of contributing to that in the, the food system environment. So Brad, do help us with some scene setting as well um, for the complex situation that arose um, here between the beloved uh, Chinook salmon, what most of us would call king salmon, um, and this really unique pod of southern resident killer whales. Sure. Actually, there are three pods of southern residents. 
uh, and they uh, are best known as inhabitants of the Salish Sea, Puget Sound and the interior waters of British Columbia. Uh, it turns out they range out into the Pacific as well. And throughout their range, they, uh, they eat mostly Chinook salmon. Uh, and as the population has declined sharply in the last 20, 30 years, uh, there's been uh, several hypotheses about what's causing the decline. Food scarcity is, and food limitation is one of the major uh, driving uh, hypotheses uh, for what's causing the decline. And there's, there's good evidence that it could well be that. Uh, these are difficult problems to pin down precisely. There are other potential causes, but uh, to the extent that uh, taking their lunch is a, a, a real concern. Uh, PCC really wanted to look at that and they asked us to help. Yeah, Amy, on that, on that front, I remember seeing uh, television coverage, probably was broadcast across the world um, about two years ago of, of female orca pushing her dead calf around uh, that really captured the hearts and minds of of folks across the world about this issue. Um, and, and I'm guessing that that led to a response from your customers that, that you would want to tell us about. Yeah. And that's, that's very on point. Um, I think that as Brad said, this is an issue that our region has been particularly attuned to for a while. And this struggle is unfortunately something that the Southern residents have been facing for several decades. Um, and, you know, we've seen some positive gains in some places, but then over the last, you know, definitely the last five years to a decade, we've seen a really deep decline again in their populations. And so um, our membership is very attuned to these issues to begin with. Um, that's, that's one of the things that why we prioritize advocating not just on our shelves, but beyond our store shelves. And we are very active on advocating on the issues that our membership is passionate about. But yes, um, it was the 17-day vigil of Tahlequah and her calf um, that really brought this to the forefront for both our community and for PCC. And we received a lot of comments and requests of, what are you doing? Like, we want you to take more action on this, and we want to be responsive to that, because that's the type of thing that we pride ourselves on um, as being kind of an advocacy uh, food co-op. And so, you know, at the time, talking with the experts, and kind of looking at the data, it seemed that issuing a Pacific Northwest moratorium on Chinook sales was maybe the step to take um, because we knew that Southern residents were local to the Northwest and we didn't want to be taking food from their mouths. And so in September of 2018, we did issue that, that moratorium, which meant that we wouldn't source Chinook from British Columbia, Oregon, or Washington. We were still sourcing from Alaska, though. And what was great about taking that step, because it was absolutely the right first step to take, is that it really started the conversations from the fishermen, from the tribal leaders, from the conservation experts in our area that have been working on this for decades. And we started learning that while it was a really positive step to take, there was, it maybe wasn't achieving everything that we wanted to do um, and started learning the kind of intricacies that Brad is really great about sharing about, about what maybe it wasn't achieving. And so it kind of sent us on this journey of that, hey, I think we need to develop our own standard that maybe accomplishes really what we're trying to achieve here and includes all of these kind of diverse sets of perspectives um, from the local community that really were passionate about this issue. 
Yeah, Brad, you and I've worked in fisheries management long enough to know that there's never any sort of simple problem, right? There's complexities upon complexities upon complexities. Um, and I think while you laid it out in a simple way that there was a hypothesis that you have, you know, this very unique three pods of orcas that were, you know, possibly starving because of a lack of Chinook, that simply taking that off of the store shelves may not have been the solution that worked for everybody. Can you can you walk us through some of those complexities and the steps that PCC asked you to take? Sure. Uh, I, I think the moratorium uh, helped to start a conversation. And part of that conversation was uh, the, an element of that complexity. You have hundreds of runs of salmon uh, that originate from California to Alaska. And they mostly turn north uh, when they come out of the river mounts and go, and go swimming into the North Pacific off Alaska. Uh, many of them are caught in Alaska, but they come from rivers down in the Northwest. Uh, so you, you then have Alaska caught fish, which are not subject to this moratorium, but nonetheless may constitute a, an interception of potential prey for Southern resident killer whales. And that was uh, the sticking point uh, that caused PCC to come to us and say, how do we work on this? Can we do better? Uh, could, we, could we do a terminal area sourcing strategy uh, where we're getting them after they've exited the hunting grounds of the whales? And we said, yeah, we can help you with that. And for us, a very important part of that and another of the complexities is that in a problem like this, uh, if food scarcity is the issue, and it's really about Chinook, uh, the, king, the king salmon, this is an animal whose decline has been caused by systemic environmental insults for a century and a half. Uh, grotesque depredations of habitat, climate change increasingly dominating the signal and, and de de decreasing the productivity of these stocks. I mean, you can see in these time series of how many go to sea and how many come back, that uh, the survival rates are going down. And uh, this is uh, directly related to increased flood intensity uh, and droughts and um, uh, very high river temperatures that not only kill young salmon, but kill adults when they come home. And these are robust, big, strong animals. Uh, and they're <laughs> we're sometimes seeing you know, half the returning adult run killed in big rivers that are hard to heat up, like the Fraser and the Columbia, that get hot enough to kill fish on their way home to spawn. It's astonishing. Uh, this is happening now. This isn't some science fiction thing. So when you, when you consider those kinds of problems, you have to say sourcing is a good place to begin. It's a terrible place to end. This is the beginning of the real work. This is a symptom to a bigger problem. It impacts a much larger population than just consumers at Amy's grocery store and uh, and the orca who depends on this. There is an entire ecosystem, economic ecosystem of people involved with salmon as well that you had to take into account. Um, what did that stakeholder interaction look like? I think that there was kind of two parts to that um, because there was a stakeholder interaction on our end of it, which is, you know, as I said, with our moratorium, people of, you know, many 
expertise and backgrounds reached out to us to, you know, both say, hey, this was a great step, but here, as I said, here are some of the things you need to be thinking about in addition to this. And so there was that initial set of kind of, we made sure to sit down, listen with open ears. Okay, tell us more about this. This is, we're ready to learn and we want to know, you know, what, what is right and what is wrong. Um, so there was that kind of first set of listening to, okay, here's what, what the moratorium might be needing to improve upon. Um, and then once we did determine, okay, this is, I think we need to develop a, a more refined standard to, to capture some of that. Um, there was a lot of, we did a lot of research to make sure that there were no existing certifications and eco labels that did um, address that. And unfortunately, none of the larger kind of, you know, partnerships and, and existing labels had anything that got went down to this kind of granular level. And so then we started reaching out to, you know, our local um, experts and, and organizations that we work with on many of these issues um, to kind of have these conversations of, is this something possible to develop? Um, and of course, you know, we, we felt really strongly that um, National Fisheries Conservation Center and Brad were, were very up to the task. And then after that engagement and deciding, okay, this is going to be our partnership in developing this, um, you know, Brad and I worked really closely together to make sure that throughout this process, we were continuing to engage a, you know, full group of experts and representatives from our community on this. And that, you know, it was really a collective stakeholder engagement effort throughout the process. Um, and I think that's one of the things that has prepared us for that this isn't a perfect solution, but it, we really do feel confident. It's a strong step and we're hoping inspires kind of the next phase of the conversation. So Brad, um two episodes ago where I interviewed members of the Lummi and Suquamish nation. And this topic came up uh, where there was, they were rightfully concerned about ceremonial and tribal fishing being blamed for some of this environmental degradation that you mentioned, um, which uh, there was obviously some racist undertones to, to that language um, and they're battling every day. How did you approach that issue, which is very integral um, to the kind of stakeholder engagement you engaged in here? Well, we had long running relationships with tribes. Um, uh, one of the senior Tulalip fisheries and natural resource people is on our board and that's Terry Williams. Uh, we have, um, a lot of collaborative history with them, and that's been intentional. Uh, uh, these folks uh, have a permanent vested interest in this resource. Uh, they have been depending on it and looking after it for at least 10,000 years, maybe longer. Uh, they, unlike the rest of us, who could all go off and become software engineers or something else, uh, or, or move to Australia, uh, they, can, they really aren't gonna do either. Uh, they're here for keeps, and they're salmon people for keeps. Uh, so uh, our starting thought here was let's make sure that folks from the tribes have a chance to help shape this and uh, know what we're doing and help peer review it uh, and bring uh, their really considerable armory of technical talent to bear on it. Uh, I mean, these are now some of the largest fishery management institutions in the country. Uh, the tribes collectively uh, are major players in looking after the resource, in running hatcheries, in doing restoration work. Um, and when you have the hard work of putting an ecosystem back together, you have a lot of people who quail 
at that, who just say, no, leave that to somebody else. And then you have tribes who say, yeah, this might take generations, we're in. That's the kind of advocate it takes to do this. And we, we just thought this is indispensable. We will work with the tribes. And uh, they have very different perspectives on this, as you know. Uh, one of them, obviously there's a racist dimension that they face. Uh, and this is a long running story. The West Coast, for all of its progressive leanings, has a, a really ugly racist history around fisheries. Uh, and Indians have been the sort of prime public enemy in the minds of people who want to arrogate their resource to themselves. And they, from time to time, they've turned that weaponry on others. Uh, they turned it on, on uh, Chinese people who innovated fishing methods and drove them off the water in California. I mean, this has been going on for more than a century. And when I hear uh, the epithets that the tribes are stretching their nets across the river and, you know, wrecking the resource, I, I, I listen to the people saying this, who like to go sport fishing, most of them. And I think, well, you just caught a fish. Who put it in the water? Who is it that looked after the resource and the habitat so it could grow? Who is it that ran the hatchery and improved the hatchery so that it is sustainable? Who did that work? You know, are, are, are you biting the hand that feeds you and you don't even know it? Um, I want to come back, Amy, you had, you talked about approaching the existing um, sourcing uh, resources. And I assume you're talking about some of the major players like Monterey Bay Aquarium, Seafood Watch, which is an incredible tool of understanding what stocks you should or should not consider in consumer behavior. But it sounds like that fell short here. Um, based on based on your experience um, in having to sort of uh, create a new system, a new way to look at this, um, what's your perspective now on how we can improve uh, Seafood Watch and, and MSC and some of the other labels out there that, that try to provide this kind of consumer information? Yeah, no, and that's a great question. Um, you know, so we are official partners of the Monterey Bay Seafood, or the Seafood Watch, um, and they've been really supportive and really wonderful throughout this process because we were, you know, very open with them and had that conversation of, hey, you know, you have, you know, particularly there's some ratings they have that are red for, you know, the Puget Sound area. And that had been one of kind of our guiding principles in first setting the moratorium. And so when we started hearing about kind of the, the details behind that, um, we went back to them with questions and they, you know, they're very open about that. And we are, I just want to say like, I still firmly support, you know, uh, Seafood Watch, their system and the efforts that they're doing. I think it's an invaluable tool. Um, the rest of our seafood is, you know, that is our main commitment is that we make sure that we're, you know, sourcing it according to Seafood Watch ratings, yellow and green, um, and really listen to their expertise and the, the incredible efforts that they put into developing these standards. But when you get to kind of these more regional issues like this, it, it's difficult for them to be able to set such detailed granular mm. kind of both from a resource perspective, um, it takes, I mean, as Brad can, you know, testify to this, it takes a lot of time and energy and effort to dig into the data sets and what you need to know and evaluate to set a fishery standard. And when you start talking about these more kind of micro place-based terminal fishery standards, that's a huge added workload. So 
from their perspective, what they have to do is manage kind of what they can evaluate and they do have to kind of set broader geographic standards and regions. And so what we've worked with them on this and we were very clear that this are if, if it is Chinook and it meets our standard, it might very well, depending on how our fishery evaluations go and from where it's being sourced, it could be in conflict with the red rating. Um, but Brad was also very attentive and we had many conversations about this, that in developing it, we were, we were confident that it was being as protective, if not more so, um, because we had actually dug down deeper and we were able to look at this kind of full spectrum within these kind of microcosms of, you know, the geography. And so it, what we're also hopeful with this kind of standard is that I think that they are recognizing that, especially on these, these issues, there's, you know, a willingness and kind of, do we need to start, do we need to be able to support them better to be able to dig down onto these levels? Um, we're hoping that, some, you know, Brad's research can help inform kind of future, as, as with any standards, you know, there are versions and evaluations and reviews. Maybe that'll help them be able to make different determinations on, you know, different subsets of that. Um, or allow them to, you know, a lot of their areas are not even, they actually don't capture some of it. Like their standards stop at certain points because um, they just don't, they're not able to evaluate every river. Um, so I think those are the bigger conversations that with all of these sourcing certifications, there are still a incredible value and an incredible effort for the consumer and for retailers alike and for the environmental kind of issues that we want to see pushed forward. But I think there is this kind of, do we need to start digging down a little bit more? Is there more of a place-based approach that needs to be kind of integrated into their, what they've already built and kind of the great processes that they do have? I should add that when you see red listed fish, it's often because they're listed under the Endangered Species Act. Yeah, yes, in the case of say Puget Sound Chinook. And we found two surprises when we looked at this. One is that the Endangered Species Act is working. It's actually bringing some of these runs back from the brink and protecting others from extinction. Uh, not that this is easy. Uh, it's not a slam dunk. It's a long, hard piece of work. Second is that part of how it works is by focusing fishing effort on the healthy runs and the hatchery runs in the midst of trouble. So you don't want to catch the ones that are weak and protected. You want to catch the ones that are safe and abundant and they're often close to each other. It takes precision. This is key because it keeps a pathway for the, the consumer to stay connected to the resource that we're trying to recover here. Uh, if we forget what it is we're protecting, we lose contact with it. We lose the culture of salmon. We lose the knowledge of what it takes to look after the world we live in. Uh, we have a chance to get this right. And getting it right includes staying in touch with the sources of food that have kept people healthy for 10,000 years in these parts. So uh, it sounds like you accomplished three really important goals here with the with these new sourcing standard in that you've uh, figured out a way to account for the problem that was occurring with this uh, pot these three pods of southern residents uh, you are accounting for the continued sustainable harvest of the of the Chinook uh, and then you're also building in some uh, accountability for blind spots that that may exist in the science which is, is uh, really impressive. And that's the major difference here. 
we actually developed a standard that's about prey interception risk. Uh, as far as I know, that, that standard doesn't exist in other seafood sourcing standards. Um, there's consideration of ecosystem effects on the needs of predators and so forth, but it doesn't tend to rise to the level of this is a, a primary standard that we're going to apply. Uh, once you do that, uh, the rest of it looks a lot like the kind of analysis that they do at MSC or at Monterey Bay. Uh, and we're asking a lot of the same kind of questions. Uh, and those are um, answered in a more spatially explicit way. So we're looking at specific uh, fishing areas uh, rather than say the entire Alaska salmon fishery, all species, all areas. Um, and uh, you know, we, we found, for example, that uh, you have a kind of a sweet spot in the Nushigak River King Run uh, in Bristol Bay, uh, which is managed explicitly for sustainability of king salmon, not as an incidental harvest to the sockeye fishery in the bay, which is how most of the other king fisheries are managed in the bay. Um, and that's important because it means they can manage it really tightly. And it's entirely outside of the migratory scope of both the whales and the salmon that they are known to prey upon. So that's one of the fisheries that did well in the evaluation. Yeah, that, Brad, that, I wanted to dig in on that a little bit more because I was, I was trying to conceptualize. I, I get tar, you know, setting up an area where you're, you're capturing Chinook as they leave the hunting ground for those. The, those pods of orca, but eventually they're going to come back. But I think now you've answered the question as you identified an area that was outside of the hunting grounds. So these would have been Chinook that wouldn't have crossed paths with the, those pods to begin with. Right. With respect to interception risk, prey interception risk, we identified three basic strategies for mitigating that risk. One is to go outside the range of both the whales and the Chinook that they eat, uh, and the identified priority prey. Uh, the second is to go to a post-prey harvest. Uh, in that case, you're catching them after they've entered the rivers and the whales don't go into the rivers. Uh, there are killer whales that go into rivers, but these fish-eating southern residents apparently do not. So once you've got it out of the sea and in the river, uh, or in, in areas that are known to be not used by the whales, uh, at the final terminal approach to their river or hatchery of origin, you've got a fish that's not somebody's lunch waiting to be eaten. Uh, so that's tactic two. Tactic three is a hypothetical. Uh, and, it, and this is saying that in mixed stock fisheries that, that do catch some fish from the 30 or so priority prey stocks of the killer whales, uh, it may be possible to demonstrate uh, very strongly, uh, if, if the statistics are good, uh, that your, your impact is negligible, which we defined as less than 2% on, on, on removals from those, from those stocks. And that can be, uh, I think the methodology is there, well, people are going to have some arm wrestling about that. Um, that will be a, a point of discussion. Amy, I, I need to take a break, but I want to come back to you. Uh, the irony is thick here that the Southern residents are highly discerning consumers, not unlike your customers. Uh, and, and I want to hear from you how you have rolled out this new sourcing standard and how your customers are taking to it. 
The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Okay, we're back. Um, Amy, this is everything Brad just explained is fascinating but yet complex um, and is not really easy to digest for an average consumer. I'm interested in how you took this, condensed it down and rolled it out to your customers in a way they could understand it and feel good about the, the new sourcing policy. Yeah, and you are absolutely correct. I think that was probably one of the biggest challenges on my end um, was to, as you said, take this very complicated um, and amazing piece of work that Brad did um, and try to translate that in a way that both gave confidence to the consumer that we were doing what we wanted to do, you know, that we were setting out to do, um, but also that they could understand. Um, and so, you know, we are, I'm, I'm lucky to have an amazing marketing team at PCC. Um, and so, you know, very early on, we started kind of sharing the framework um, of this standard and working with them to really digest it down um, and and you know really just hone in on kind of the the primary pieces of there is that we were going to be sourcing to protect the southern residents main food supply and also to protect the chinook stocks and that is really kind of the raison d'etre behind the sourcing standard and that it was taking what we started with the moratorium and refining it and making sure that we were achieving those goals. And so, you know, that was really kind of our messaging that we got behind. And so we did that both through in-store kind of for a month of September, we will have that boiled down language and messaging um, available in the stores um, with a link also. And this is the part that I really get behind um, in that I wanted to bring a new level of kind of transparency to our product standards because PCC is rightfully known to be very ahead forwarding on product sustainability standards. And but one piece that I really wanted to bring, especially when we invested so much and Brad has invested so much into this research is to make sure that that was available to the public um, and wasn't just our 
boiled down language that if they want to dig in and they want to read <laughs> 40 pages of you know standard and research behind it that they could do that and so we made sure to make that available on our website um, as well as the evaluations for the fisheries um, so that that is there for the public to know and that's also there for other retailers and other people to learn from and ask the questions and like brad said it's not necessarily to emulate it exactly but to, to start those conversations and really bring to bear the information that he's worked so hard to analyze and and compile into this meaningful standard um, so those were all kind of the transparency their communication and then we also provided frequently asked questions and we have a very proactive customer service um, department. We believe in providing full and complete answers. Um, so thus far, we've gotten really positive feedback. Everyone's excited that we've took the step that we've invested so much into to thinking about this so deeply. Um, and we know that there, you know, we have, of course, there's the, you know, why don't you just not sell Chinook? But I think that if you go and you read the standards and all of the thought processes that Brad went through, it's answered in there. Um, it's that that necessary that wasn't necessarily the answer either, um, because it was excluding, as Brad said, so many people that have worked so passionately and dedicatedly to this issue for decades. Um, and it's, you know, it is a difficult balance, but I, I'm really, really proud of our team at PCC and how they were able to pull together this messaging and also that they were willing to be as transparent as they, as we have been and sharing this work. That's incredible to hear. I mean, Brad, this is a unique company that we're talking about here. It's probably setting a model. How do you take that kind of complex set of information and convince other corporations to dig in in the same way that PCC has here? It's a good question. I think we'll be learning that in the coming yeah. years. Uh, and I really think PCC is, uh, uh, for us, the optimal partner in doing this. Uh, they have, and I've been a member for, you know, since the dawn of time, uh, the, uh, uh, they have a, uh, a history of digging into the issues and doing their homework and uh, of really trying to get beyond just the sound bites of let's uh, feel good about ourselves and give ourselves a gold star. Let's do what really works. And or as close to that as we can get in an imperfect world where sometimes, you know, in, as in the case of Chinook, uh, perfection can become the enemy of the good. Uh, you, know, you, you have to have uh, an ability to discern uh, what's a, a romantic folly that can't actually work and what, <laughs> what's, what's actually a, 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 a model you can, you can look after the resource with. And for me, a key piece here and an element that I think other companies, regardless of how they choose to source, can play a significant role in, both as retailers, as producers, as other folks who care about salmon uh, and salmon country, is to work with us in identifying the levers to, to pull to uh, make uh, better productivity in these rivers, uh, look after the capacity of the ocean to feed these animals, which is definitely under strain because of largely climate change and pollution. Uh, there are, there are many roles for many players, regardless of how they source. I mean, of all the levers, sourcing is arguably uh, the tiny one uh, because uh, the, the harvest constitutes such a small source of mortality. 
in most cases, uh, particularly in the, in the, in the, the fisheries that we highlighted. Uh, it's, it's very, very well controlled. And the primary risks to these animals come from exogenous sources outside of the fisheries. Uh, so there's a role for a lot of people, whether they want to source this way or not. So that brings up an interesting point, Amy, having gone through this experience and knowing sort of what those levers look like now and, and the complexity of this issue, what other areas are you looking at in, in, on your store shelves uh, to consider doing this kind of uh, deep dive and methodology for other products? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think that seafood is definitely a unique product in this and that it's a wild harvest uh, product. Um, we do prioritize wild harvest for most of our fresh and raw seafoods. Um, also connected to that, we, you know, we've seen the problems that net pens in our regions have caused for kind of salmons and everything like that. So, you know, I, I think that there, the list is long. <laughs> I have a, you know, I have a list a mile long of the products and the product standards that we want to evaluate and see if we can have impact on. Um, and but as far as this kind of detailed scientific geographic analysis that has such a regional connection, I mean, I really do think that Chinook is unique and the Southern residents are unique because they are so connected to our community here. Um, and, you know, I don't know what other products we would do this addition, you know, this level, but I think that that's one of those things that we're completely open to it. And now having gone through this process, I think it's really going to educate us in, you know, is this something that we want to consider for other products that have that deeply kind of personal connection to our community? And we'll just have to see. I mean, there has been the question raised about, you know, okay, do you start doing this for all salmon? (laughs) Um, You know, because there are some challenges, you know, obviously other species of salmon are facing challenges as well. Um, I think that's a question, you know, to evaluate and consider. But, you know, right now, just because of kind of so many connections on this one, it makes sense to start here. And, you know, we are, we're, we're still a pretty in the grocery perspective, you know, we're, we're 15 stores. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is pretty amazing that we were willing to invest and do this um, on that scale. Um, so I'm really proud of, of PCC and just like their commitment to this. And I'm, you know, the leadership and their willingness to get behind this really inspiring. So I, I love that we've started this process and it'll be really interesting to see where we can take it. I think that's a great question. And, and Brad, I would pose to you the, the same question that I posed to Amy. What, what are the other uh, species that you would look at, at uh, you know, uh, perpetuating this model that you built here? Well, I'll be better positioned to answer that once we get going in what we refer to as phase two which is really the building of the consortium to go after the systemic root causes. Uh, Because that is where I think uh, the model starts scaling best and crossing species lines. Uh, Most, if not all, seafood species are vulnerable to these depredations that are affecting Chinook now. Uh, And it's, it's a question of time. When will it really come to a head? Uh, it, it, it may take a while for some. And uh, I mean, there are plenty of seafood sectors that would prefer not to deal with that reality and don't have to right now. Uh, it's, it's another day's battle in, as far as they're concerned. Uh, I 
tend to think it's better to engage that battle when it's young and you can still win you know, uh, than wait for it to grow up into a big monster that you can't be. Um, and uh, so I, I'm interested in engaging other parts of the seafood industry as we have been working to do for a long time with mixed success on these big systemic issues. Um, and you know, these are not the standard issue fishery sustainability issues. I mean, the, the beauty of overfishing, which has been the dominant issue historically in fisheries, is that we know how to fix it. It's easy, it's simple. Well, it's not easy, it's simple. Catch less, they bounce, it's great. You know, this is, this is a beautiful problem to have. Um, compared to climate and pollution, it is a beautiful problem because we, know, we totally have what it takes to do it. We've solved this problem many times. Um, and in dealing with climate and pollution, we're dealing with problems that are, are novel and very challenging and getting larger by the day. Uh, and the, the role of the food sector writ large in tackling that uh, could be like other fundamental resource sectors to say, hey, we put the food on your table. We put the roof over your head. How about you help us make sure we can keep doing that? And I'd love to add something to that um, because Brad, I think you really, you know, we've had long conversations about this and we couldn't agree more that, you know, it isn't just about setting these sourcing standards for the products. And that's where PCC has also really excelled is that we've already been putting in a huge amount of effort into thinking, how can retailers improve our carbon footprint? How can we set broader sustainability standards? So, you know, we are already a carbon net zero as of 2019 operation. Um, our new, you know, our new stores that we're developing are, we're doing the living building challenge certifications, um, which is the highest kind of level of sustainability. It's like lead, but, but more, <laughs> um, you know, as far as that we have, you know, our deli operations, we set a goal for 2022 to eliminate um, plastic and we've reached 80% of that with our rollout of uh, compostable, um, you know, packaging in our deli um, just last year. And so, you know, these are this, it's not just limited to the products and how we source it. It's as an operation, as a standards across the board, you know, how do we prioritize our impacts on this? And that's also part of our advocacy. I mean, I, you know, we are actively engaging on legislation that supports, you know, climate or, you know, greenhouse gas reductions, um, toxic reduction reductions in watersheds and um, consumer products and, you know, making sure we're, strong organic and soil health advocates. I mean, that's one of our biggest priorities because that impacts the, the water rays and, you know, supporting salmon safe farms and, and farming. Um, so we really don't stop at just how do we source the standard. It's how can we be the change we want to see um, in the community. And, you know, we have incredible leaders. Our Brenna Davis, our VP of Social and Environmental Responsibility, is just an amazing leader on this and has built a team that really is thinking about all access, you know, points of this and how we can have impact on those issues. And that's where it's really exciting is this next phase. It's okay, we've got the sourcing, but how are we going to then bring more effort to that? Um, and, and that's where we really hope to build kind of a framework for retailers and saying like, what can we all get behind to really find, you know, our impact points on these, these major issues that are impacting the salmon, the orcas, the, the pollinators, the every, every piece of our food system that is under threat because of them. No doubt that you're on the vanguard of, of these sustainability issues. And so my question would be for you, um, 
based on lessons learned in your experience with, with Chinook here, for the grocery retailers across the, the country, big and small, like the Kroger's, Public, HEB, Randall's, Walmart, you know, up to the mega stores, what can they draw from, from your experience here that might help them dip their toe in at the same level that you're operating at? I think that, you know, the, the first and foremost is that they just have to be open to being bold and, and also listening, though to, you know, really listening and really digging in that, you, you know, you want to take these bold active steps and they're important and it, it definitely shows that you're committed, but you really need to think through every piece of it for it to have meaningful impact. And we see this in so many areas. I mean, from, you know, making a shift to compostability, you can't just think, yay, I'm taking away that piece of plastic. You have to think, okay, can my infrastructure support this? Are people actually going to be able to put this in a bin? Are, you know, is the sticker going to work? Is it, you know, and then you also have to be willing to bring your effort to those problems that surround it. Um, and I think that the Chinook sourcing is that example. I mean, you know, you take a bold step and say, we're committed to this. We want to issue this moratorium. But when you start learning that there's ways to refine it and there's more pieces of it that need to be addressed, you have to be willing to double down and take that additional step and really put your thought and energy and, and kind of resources behind addressing that full-scale solution. I grew up in a family where salmon were the meaning of life uh, for my grandparents and their generation. Uh, the decimation of the Columbia River resource was uh, a numbing horror show. Uh, it, uh, it just left them gasping. Um, and that motivated me to do this um, for uh, really the rest of my life, uh, watching what they experienced. Um, when, when I look at where we are in salmon country, we broke the ecosystem. Now we own it. It's up to us to put it back together. That's long work. And we need to have respect for the people who know what long work is. And by that, I really mean above all the tribes. Uh, they're here for keeps and we need to get real about doing the same thing. Amy? Yeah, and I would say that I think that the biggest Kind of message they want to send out there is that we're this is not the last step for us you know what we're really hoping is that this inspires other retailers and other people that are a part of the you know food system community to come together and really talk about these next steps that we need to take to address those systemic issues um because sourcing is just not it's it's i wish it could be the solution but it's not um, so i mean that's what we're really excited about um, we want to learn from you know we've had some great conversations with tribal leaders. We're really excited about hopefully being able to build that relationship and utilize their knowledge to help guide these conversations. Um, and then just, yeah, let's get together and figure out like what's this next phase look like because we're excited about that. Yeah, I want to say sourcing, it, it's, not, it's not insignificant. It does matter, but it, it, it's it, one mistake we in the sustainable seafood world have made, I think, has been to overemphasize this idea that you can buy your way to heaven. Uh, and your buying choices are the, the definition of sustainability. And there are problems that are bigger than your buying choice. There are, there are an entire society's relationship with the ecosystems it depends on. And how we, how we grapple with that 
is visibly central for the future of Chinook salmon and the whales that depend on them. And because of how much people identify with those animals, it's become clear that they are us. The governor of Washington a couple of years ago said, those whales, that's us. And I would just add that, you know, Brad is right that sourcing is important. Um, And it is important because when you prioritize the work that's gone behind this and you do support that work, then it enables retailers like us and and Brad and everything to continue this really kind of next level work on it too. Um, So it does have impact beyond even just kind of that sourcing aspect. So, you know, I think it's all just really a part of a a universal effort that we all need to come together and keep doing it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a part of walking the road. And, you know, people are going to have different ways of doing this sourcing. There are other valid ways, too. Uh, but what we are going to have to pull together on is looking after the, world, the world's capacity to make these fish and support these whales and us. Sage words from both of you. Um, thank you for the incredible work that you've done here. I think it's a, it could be a global model for how to tackle these very complex issues. Um, and I, I guarantee you that this regional situation that you faced is, is not the only place where that kind of, that, that kind of model needs to be put into place. Uh, so thank you for that, that great work. Uh, and thank you for today. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to the audience and walk them through this, uh, this uh, really interesting case study. Well said. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for having us. Thank you again to Amy Simpson of the PCC Community Markets uh, and Brad Warren from the National Fisheries Conservation Center for laying out this amazing case study for how corporations, community stakeholders, and scientists can work together to find a triple bottom line in these complex natural resource conflicts. Uh, On a related note, I encourage all of you to download the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch app. It'll give you a baseline guide on understanding those little placards at your favorite seafood counter so that you can put your buying power to work for a better planet. Thank you to everyone listening. And as always, I welcome your feedback and show ideas. And I can be reached at robertevansjones.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Apple, Google, Spotify, etc. Uh, so you can get additional episodes and get them delivered to your, to your device. Uh, And one more plug for Brad's show uh, called Changing Waters on the same network. Uh, You should definitely give it a listen. Until next time, I wish you calm seas.